This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Our guest today has written many things which we've quoted over the years, and of late has penned some opinion pieces we're keen to discuss. Russ Baker first spoke with us over a decade ago. In a recent post on his site, Going Deep with Russ Baker, he took a sharp look at Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. It was titled, Western and Russian Imperialism, Our Wrongs Don't Make Putin Right. We wanted to speak with him about it last week, but couldn't get it scheduled, which is just as well. Russ has since authored a follow-up piece in the wake of the feedback which he received. It is titled, Does It Really Matter Whether a Violent Dictator is Left or Right? Reactions to My Putin Story. So this gives us two things to talk about. We do want to note that Russ Baker has a lengthy career in journalism. After receiving a graduate degree in SAME from Columbia, he worked as a Metro reporter for Newsday and went abroad to report on the fall of the Berlin Wall for CBS Radio and the Christian Science Monitor. Afterwards, he wrote for the New York Times, Esquire, Vanity Fair, and The New Yorker. His investigations have included the pursuit of Serbian war criminals, criticism of Judith Miller's war-friendly reportage, and the strange tale of George W. Bush's military record. In 2008, he wrote a book about Bush clan's scandalous activities. It was titled Family of Secrets. It pulled no punches and aroused some fierce responses. Mr. Baker has since founded and remains editor-in-chief of whowhatwhy.org, which highlights what one must call deep politics and the intersection of power and money, in particular the types of stories the mainstream media treads lightly on owing to, well, their complicity in the matters at hand. It's good stuff. We recommend it highly. But we suggest you wait a bit before you check it out because we first need to have a chat about what is going on in Ukraine. And it's a pleasure to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Russ Baker. Uh, thanks very much, Doug. Good to be here. Your first piece on Putin notes that over the past year, some people expressed frustration at, at who, what, why, how you cover the Russian invasion from the premise that Russia was the problem. And I, I've been surprised by people I know disagreeing with that premise. And you must have been a bit astonished by this dismissive attitude especially when it came from humanitarians, peaceniks, and fellow journalists. Yeah, I, I have to say that putting aside all the other issues we could talk about, just the simple fact that people I know literally didn't say a word about being upset about the carnage there, that just blew me away, Doug. How does the same person who wears a T-shirt, marches for, you know, Nicaragua, Palestine, Native Americans, the horrible circumstances faced by African Americans with the police, how do they, like, say nothing about something of this magnitude? And it just, to me, there's no defending that. And when they say whatever they say, I say, well, how come you don't say anything about how terrible this is? And they continue to, to refuse to even discuss that. And they go always to these certain default points. And I suppose what you want to do here is talk about those default points. Absolutely. Let, let's go through some of those. There's a, a whole set of them. Uh, and, and I think they're all based on incorrect premises. But, you know, one of them of course, is this idea that Russia felt threatened by NATO, and particularly by uh, Ukraine and NATO. And first thing that I thought about when I heard that was, really? I mean, I don't actually remember that. And, and so I went back and I looked, and in fact, Putin never said uh, anything. When he first started agitating against Ukraine, that was not his line at all. So at some point, he discovered that as a 
as a viable issue. But the fact of the matter is Russia has allies who are members of NATO, and, and that doesn't bother him, starting with Hungary. I mean, it's not like NATO is lock, stock, and barrel uh, owned by Washington. And, and, and also, the other thing that struck me was, what is NATO anymore? I mean, and how exactly is it a threat? Is it a threat to the ordinary Russian? And if so, how? And I don't see any real discussion of that. I just see this sort of myth put out there. So that's one thing. But there are others. Well, I've heard people say, well, you know, they double-crossed the Russians and said that NATO wouldn't expand. But right now, I noted that Sweden and Finland are asking to join NATO. So it's not like I don't think the U.S. has twisted a lot of people's arms to uh, to move away from, you know, the Russian sphere. Yeah, and I mean, if, if one of the points of NATO is that the signatories will not attack each other, why wouldn't you want everybody to join it? Well, yeah. I mean, why doesn't Russia join NATO? <laughs> You're the first to propose it. I, I like the idea. It settles the problem, I think. You know. So the other issue that, that, that really just drives me up the wall is this idea that Putin, he's there and that's that, and his concerns need to be dealt with. And you know, my question is, is that just a, a viewpoint in general, that whoever is anywhere, then that's that? I don't think that my friends who are, are so much against the U.S. support of, of Ukraine's defense would actually argue that. If you went through various people they didn't like, you'd say, well, did, you, did you say that about that person, that we just leave them alone, you know, Franco or whoever it was? I'm sure not. And so my question is, why would you just leave this guy alone? And then they say, well, you know, I mean, uh, he's got nuclear weapons, and they bring up that issue that, you know, he's threatening a nuclear war. And then my answer is, uh, are, are, is that who you are, that if anybody threatens you, you just you know, knuckle under? A, I don't think that's a good policy to respond to extortion. Uh, B, uh, who says he would launch a nuclear war? I mean, how would that possibly be a good idea? I mean, I don't think he would do it, first of all. And second of all, I don't think the Russians would let him do it. And third of all, in in what way are Putin's personal interests? This is another issue, Doug, that I I love. Is in what way are Putin's personal interests Russia's interests? I mean, the (laughs) Russians I know hate him and their media and their lives destroyed by him. They're all scrambling to get out of there. So in what way does he represent anything that benefits the well-informed Russians? I mean, his base, to me, is very similar to the MAGA group. You know, they're people who are poorly informed. They all get their information from a state-controlled media, the equivalent of Fox News. So I I just don't see it. Well, I'm sure you have some Ukrainian friends. I have one particularly uh, vocal friend who is quite Ukrainian, and he just— cites that this notion that, that, that Ukraine is really Russia and something for Russia to do what it will is just is, is ridiculous. And yet you keep hearing that as well. Well, that's also ridiculous because you could also find many, many examples where, uh, where Russia said that Ukraine was not Russia. <laughs> and they said Ukraine was a separate country. So the, the problem is that this stuff is used very, very selectively. And one wonders why people cite these things. Do they cite them because they know them to be true or they did research? Or did they hear them and like them? And I have to tell you, I mean, I hear from, you know, I, I have this Substack newsletter, which uh, I hope your listeners will subscribe to. It's called Going Deep with Russ Baker. I think you just Google that, sub Russ Baker, Substack, or whowhatwhy.org, where we reprint those. I always have to shut off comments, you know, the, the comments page, because 
you, you get a few people who are reasonable, and, and you got, privately you get all these notes of people saying, I'm glad you wrote that, I appreciate that. But the people who post the comments are these same old, tired people who are full of bile, and you don't know who they are, and you, you I suppose they're actually Americans. I guess they are, but they're so down on everything about the U.S., and honestly, one gets the distinct impression that they like Putin, that they think he's fantastic, and that the U.S. is a horrible, horrible place, despite the fact that I guess these people all live here, where they are essentially free to express their opinions, do what they want, which you certainly can't do in Putin's Russia. So the whole thing just really is concerning and, and disheartening and, and, and quite worrisome. Well, I'm sure what, what comes to your mind, what, what, as what has come to my mind on many occasions, and it's, it, this sort of thing has stuck in my mind since I read about it many, many years ago, which was that leftists in the West, who were sympathetic to the ideals of a more just society that were espoused by the Bolsheviks, they were unable to accept the possibility that Stalin's show trials were just about his murder of rivals. Uh, many socialists thought there must be something to the claim that these people that all become suddenly counter-revolutionaries and their, their trials must be justified somehow. It reminds me of that so much. Yeah, I mean, this, this is a group of people who want to believe in some ideal so badly that they will overlook every aspect of reality. Yeah. I see you cited Noam Chomsky as someone who wrote you back very critically, and I can't resist taking a shot at uh, Chomsky. I know you've done a lot of fine work looking at the JFK assassination, whereas I know him once said it didn't matter who really was behind the crime. He, he seems like a pretty hard case. <laughs> Well, I mean, I appreciate him on a bunch of levels, but yeah, I certainly don't agree with him, and he is a hard case, and, and I think a lot of those people, you know, there's many of them, and, and by the way, they've cultivated big brands by being critical of the U.S. on everything, and I say that as somebody who himself has been so critical of the U.S., but the, the whole reason... Doug, that I started Who, What, Why as a nonprofit news organization is because I was so frustrated by everybody having a dog in every fight. And I said, that ain't journalism. Journalism would be to just look at the facts of the case. You shouldn't be for the Israelis or for the Palestinians or for this or for that. You should just look at the stuff. And I think that if journalism did that better, we would probably actually have less of the bile in this country, less of the divisiveness, where you at least listen to people. I, I listen to people who I don't agree with, you know, people who are Fox News watchers. I listen to what their beliefs are, and I try to understand where those fears and those concerns come from. And they don't come from nowhere. Those people are being manipulated because they don't really understand these kinds of hot-button issues that are put forward to them. They don't really understand what AP Black Studies is and isn't. They don't really understand what a trans person is and isn't. But to just kind of lambaste them for an admitted response that they have on the surface, you see. And so I think this country has just gotten to the point where people, are, their views are so hardened. And by the way, there's all those, you know, I, I don't know if I should say the names, but major left brands, major libertarian brands, people whose names start with Glenn and uh, Matt, they do very well professionally by espousing an extremely hard line, and they write very well. So I think people find their stuff entertaining, but they espouse a very, very hard line on these things uh, that really often uh, is not justified by the facts. Glad you, you brought that up. Some, someone sent me recently, a, a couple of days ago, a piece where in it they're arguing that uh, Biden and his administration, they were just trying to push Putin into a war to give him a Vietnam-style black eye, uh, much as the U.S. sought to induce a Soviet invasion of Afghanistan back in the 1970s. What do you say to that? Yeah, well, they have no evidence of that. I mean, I don't know. 
I, is, it, is it possible? I suppose it's possible. You see, what I object to is that's not journalism. If you don't really know something like that, why should you say it? I mean, to me, it's a kind of malpractice. I did have to laugh at one comment in, in your first essay that, you know, as critical as you have been of U.S. actions, and you've certainly been outspoken in criticism, uh, you did point out that compared to authoritarian regimes like Putin's, we have to be seen as not all that bad, relatively speaking. And I guess that's provoked a few people. But, but the fact of the matter is, you know, I was just talking to a guy who was talking about the police, and I said, listen, I, you know, I used to write about police corruption, police brutality. And police are, is a huge problem in America. At the same time, you know, if your house is burglarized or you've got some imminent danger, you call the police. So, you know, we, 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 can't, we can't completely get rid of the police. We need to change the police and make the police better. But you just don't totally throw the whole thing out. And this country has many wonderful qualities. Most of the people are bitching, by the way, live in the U.S. and are perfectly happy to take their Social Security and their Medicare and everything else. And, and they love the freedom to say and do whatever they want. So, I mean, to, to, to minimize that, to trivialize that, to ignore that and take a guy like Putin who who, who really, you know, runs what is a, effectively a, a totalitarian society. I mean, how do you do that? I should probably pause for air and just note that uh, you, you've noted in your essays that based on feedback, most progressives do seem to get it. I haven't seen any polls. Have you? No, but you were implying that, that most of them did. I think most of them do. Okay. Yeah, I don't even know what the mainstream media is anymore, but I mean, I think most of the media, collectively and individually, are very concerned about what's happening to Ukraine. And so there's certainly that. And I'm, I'm talking about also these so-called progressive sort of MSNBCs and what have you. I mean, I think most of them are on that side. And then most of the people I know personally, the people on the board of uh, the parent organization for Who, What, Why, people I've known and respected for years who are very progressive, very humanitarian, thoughtful people, they all feel that way. There's not a single person uh, in my personal uh, a close circle, uh, family members, et cetera, et cetera. There's nobody who doesn't think that uh, what Putin is doing is horrible. And all of them think that the right thing, the moral thing to do uh, is to help these people out. Well, I'm sure people are going to need to go and, and read these essays that you wrote uh, for themselves. And, and while we're talking about that, where would you direct people that want to learn more? Well, there's our uh, website, whowhatwhy.org. We're a nonprofit news organization. I've got a substack. You can just do Google Russ Baker substack and sign up for it. Uh, and then I've got my own loud mouth out on Twitter. <laughs> it's a real Russ Baker. Uh, so that's, that's a good start. And, and, of course, my book, Family of Secrets, which uh, is still selling extremely well after it came out more than, what, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, and it is about uh, the U.S. national security state. It is about the horrible things that this institution has done. Uh, and I think that qualifies me to also say when it's not doing something so horrible. Um, by the way, I do want to say that I am very, very concerned about the military-industrial complex. I'm concerned about uh, anything that uh, gives it profits or opportunities to expand again. But uh, I have to say, and I tweeted this, I would have to imagine that Putin would be the biggest shareholder in these companies because he's the one generating all those profits. Yeah, you noted that the military-industrial complex, something that political progressives certainly don't want to support, yet in providing the sort of tacit support for Putin, you, you argued that, well, they're supporting the poster boy for military spending indirectly. Well, exactly. They need this kind of thing.
Well, Russ, I've been in the audience when I've seen you cited for your good work uh, relating to investigating JFK's assassination. Uh, this year marks the 60th anniversary of that event. Is there anything special in your pipeline uh, related to that you could tell us about? Well, I have been working on a book about the JFK assassination now for going to be 15 years or something. I've got a research team that works with me, and we're doing a, it's kind of a crazy amount of work. People say, well, why? What more is there to be said? There are a thousand books out and so on. It turns out there's a lot more to be said. And the reason I got into this, I don't know what to call it. it project is too small a word, but it, it's an all-encompassing effort uh, to try to understand what happened uh, is because it seems to me that some switch was flipped in the United States, and the U.S. was never really the same again. The world was never really the same again. And when you see people like Chuck Schumer saying, well, you you better not go up against the CIA because they're going to screw you every possible way, it wasn't that he was threatening people. He was saying, look, he understands the limitations of what the system can do against those parts of the establishment. And I think that understanding what happened uh, with Kennedy and the promise that he represented and some of the values and things that were being promoted at the highest levels is absolutely essential. I think we kind of need to do a roto-rooter job on our history, uh, clean things out and and start over again. And so that's that's why I'm doing that. I've discovered some absolutely hair-raising things have never come out before. And I think when we eventually do finish that book, it's really going to be kind of a shock to people, including people who've written their own books on the subject. Wow. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to that. We've been speaking with author, publisher, and investigative journalist Russ Baker. Bill Moyers has called him an indefatigable researcher from whom I could learn something about a subject that I hadn't known. And we feel the same way. We want you to keep up the good work, Russ, and and hope that uh, we may have you on again sometime soon. Terrific. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate what you do. All righty. All right, I think at this point what we're going to do is take a little trip into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mr. McMillan? According to The Week magazine, it was a good week this past week for smells. With a proposal from State Senator Bill Souls to make the aroma of green chili roasting in the fall the official state aroma of New Mexico. And in case you're wondering, this would make it the first state with an official aroma, a trend we hope does not catch on. Although if it does, we may make some suggestions for a few key states like Texas. And it was a bad week. Well, it was a bad week for the news of something that may turn out to be a real, real bad week not too far in the future. This concerns the state of Florida, whose coastal waters and beaches could be enveloped this very summer by an unprecedented 8.7 million tons of seaweed, or sargassum, which is currently forming in the Atlantic east of Cuba. 
Now, as you may or may not know, there has always been this large patch of seaweed out in what's known as the appropriate, what's appropriately known as the Sargasso Sea. But for reasons that don't seem quite clear, but may have to do with global warming, large chunks of sargassum have broken off and floated into the Caribbean, where they've been following the beaches of several islands for a while now. In case you're wondering, this massive mat of seaweed smells like rotten eggs as it decays. Yes, Mr. Miller, I guess that could eventually become the official state smell of Florida. We'll just have to see. And it was an ugly week recently for cartography, with the news that after a cartographic survey of the Japanese archipelago, Japan stands to roughly double its number of islands to more than 14,000. The story here is that previous surveys neglected to count small islands and lakes and rivers, and new islands that have been created by volcanic activity. But much should we buying this? I saw a recent uh, survey of countries with the most islands. I don't know where I ran across this, somewhere on social media, which I should know better than to be on. But the choices struck me as strange. If you look at the world globe, you have to think that the nations with the most islands have to be Canada and Indonesia, and maybe the Philippines. But as I recall, those somehow were not the top choices. And apparently it was a good week for dogs recently, but but on the same time, probably a bad week for dog food manufacturers. With the news that a new study has concluded that feeding Fido a very diet made him less likely to grow up to suffer from chronic enteropathy, a disorder characterized by diarrhea, vomiting, and weight loss. And no, we're not sure how common a problem that really is, but after researchers gathered dietary and health data on more than 4,500 puppies and 4,000 adolescent dogs, they found the dogs given a mixed diet, including raw meat, bones, vegetable, berries, and leftover people food, had 22% lower odds of experiencing symptoms of chronic enteropathy later in life versus those who were given only kibble. They speculate that the reason for this is that a varied diet boosts populations of good microbes in the dog's guts, just as it does for humans. Of course, there may be some bias here in the, in the people that conducted the study. The co-author, Anna Heim Bjorkman from the University of Helsinki, told the Times in the UK that variety is important. Nobody would give 12 years of the same food to a child. Why should a dog be different? And something that combines a bit of good and bad and ugly is the news that Seattle has become the first U.S. city to ban caste discrimination. Now, it turns out that calls to outlaw discrimination based on caste, a division of people based on their birth or descent, have grown louder among South Asian diaspora communities in the United States. Of course, the AP writing that should have said Indian communities. Although I guess Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bangladesh could also be included in that. But wouldn't you know it? (laughs) That movement is getting pushback from some Hindu Americans who argue that such legislation maligns a specific community. Yes, that seems inevitable. It's going to malign the community that developed and perpetuates the caste system, which, you know, should already be illegal in America. But I guess it's become a problem in certain, you know, tech sectors and Seattle and the Bay Area have have noted this issue. I, I uh, I guess from what my understanding here is that in various settings of employment in high tech, uh, you find a lot of people from that part of the world. And apparently, some of the high caste employees discriminate against the lower caste employees. 
Noted the piece on this, the origins of the caste system in India can be traced back 3,000 years, I'd say at least, as a social hierarchy based on one's occupation and birth. It's uh, frankly 3,000 plus years of institutionalized racism, and it's, 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 it's time it, uh, it went by the boards. Whether these bans here in America of the practice uh, will do any good remains to be seen, but we hope so. What it'll probably mean is that the practice will become less overt and more secretive and dishonest. I don't know. We reported on last week's program about this terrible train derailment that took place in Ohio. I couldn't resist a little item in the reporting on that from The Economist, the February 25th issue, which noted that Donald Trump showed up in Ohio to exploit the sentiment that the federal government was ignoring these people. Trump said, you are not forgotten, to a small group of locals during a visit he made on February 22nd. He drew a contrast between his presence in Ohio and the whereabouts of President Joe Biden, who'd been in Poland that day after an earlier stop in Ukraine. The Economist reported that Richard Lloyd, who lives around three miles from where the trains derailed, stood waiting for Mr. Trump wearing a hazmat suit and gas mask. They should be giving these to everyone in this town, he said. The air is far too unsafe to breathe. He made that observation before removing his mask to fire up a cigarette. This same piece quoted uh, a former safety inspector for Canadian Railways, who said he worries about the future in America of rail. In recent years, profits on our railways have soared, and firms have reduced their headcount and increased the length of trains. Which can't be good for safety. I have to say, I was up in the hills uh, a few months ago looking down at a train that was passing on the flatlands. And I was impressed at its length. It was a very long train. Of course, Mr. Millen does take pains to point out it's not the length of the train that counts. Now, there's a slight update here in this story about uh, the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. The United States Department of Energy, based upon some intelligence which they're not sharing with the public has now concluded that an accidental laboratory leak in China is most likely the cause of the pandemic, although U.S. spy agencies reportedly remain divided over the origins of the virus. What's sad is this whole thing is, is breaking down along party lines. Democrats have not been persuaded by the lab leak hypothesis, with some saying they believe the natural cause is explanation, and others saying they're not certain enough intelligence will emerge to draw a conclusion. Republicans, by contrast, on Capitol Hill have said they believe the virus could have come from one of China's research labs in Wuhan. Congressional subcommittee, created when Republicans took over the House, has made examining the lab leak theory a central focus of its work and expected to convene its first series of hearings next month. And no, we have no confidence that uh, that sort of attitude is going to get us closer to the truth of what happened. We hear Republicans pointing fingers at Anthony Fauci for being the source of the virus and Pretty sure that ain't right. We need to take a short break. Let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We got plenty more, so stick around. <laughs> 